Let's uh, flip over to Acts chapter 17, if you wouldn't mind. I uh, tried to make it to 18, but was unable. <laughs> the, I should say, last week uh, we looked at more along the lines of the fact that once Paul leaves and he gets to Athens, he leaves uh, Timothy and Silas behind, he gets to Athens and it says that his heart or his soul it was stirred up in him. And this idea of he observed the idolatry and that caused something in him of great concern. The word is provoked. And so he was provoked in his heart, the kind of the seat of emotions, the center of our soul, if we will. And he begins to speak to people about the gospel. And really last week we talked mostly about not just that it's a good thing to talk about the gospel. I don't, I'm pretty sure like five seconds after you receive Jesus, you know, you, you kind of know like, hey, this is a good thing to talk about. But more along the lines of, how do I desire to talk about it? Or how does my heart, uh, how can my heart change? And just for some of us who are in different places in our walk, and sometimes you just don't care. Sometimes you're kind of like, yeah, God's work. Um, I know it's important intellectually, but in my heart, I, I, I'm not really given to it. I'm not really willing to lay down for it. So how we can kind of move forward and let God change our hearts and get his will in our hearts so that we can move forward and be a part of his work. Because that's what he says. He says he's, willing, or sorry, he, he's acting in our lives. He's began a good work. He's going to complete it. But he's working out the willing and the doing of his own good pleasure, right? Uh, in other words, he is working in our hearts both a willingness and an accomplishment for his work in our hearts, that, that he is actually able to change our hearts, which is good news. Because you ever tried to change your heart before? Yeah, you, you, you can't just like... Okay, I just love everybody now. <laughs> this brief thing. So uh, we didn't really focus on his message. We just focused how he got to his message, if that makes sense, last week. This week I wanted to look at his message. I thought maybe about going on to 18, but it's just such a substantial and, and great example of preaching the gospel that instead I decided, hey, let's go back and let's look at what he has to say. Because I think it's applicable not just for the Athenians uh, and their day and not the Epicureans and the Stoics and the philosophers, uh, but for us, too, just as human beings that are trying to figure this world out. So if you wouldn't mind, uh, let's jump in uh, at verse 22, and we'll read there Paul's message to the Athenians on the Mount of uh, Ares. <clears throat> he says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, and observed, oh, excuse me, the object of worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor does he serve by, is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, 
because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And we'll stop there. And so if you recall from last week, what happens is Paul gets there and then he begins to talk in the synagogue. And when he's not talking in the synagogue, he begins to just kind of go out into the marketplace and talk to people in the marketplace. And remember, he kind of comes upon some philosophers, the Epicurean philosopher, their, their philosophy of thinking, and some Stoics. And they begin to talk to him and they, ask, they, they say, what's this new teaching that you're explaining? What, what are you talking about? This idea of resurrection from the dead, that was kind of a foreign idea for them. And they say, and you might remember it, they say, let's see what this babbler has to say. <laughs> so they take him and they bring him to, they ask him to come up to the Areopagus, which literally just means the Mount of Ares, or Ares. So the, the interesting thing is the word babbler there, it's kind of almost like a sentence. In, in the Greek, it literally means someone who picks up seed. And it's, a, it's actually a slur. They're making fun of him. Obviously, we translated, uh, the, the English got translated babbler. But the idea is almost worse. It's the idea of someone who collects scraps of truth and then shares them as if they're their own. Does that make sense? So what they're accusing Paul of is basically just kind of listening to some random junk and then coming to Athens and trying to peddle it like real philosophy, like stuff that matters. So they say, ah, this is kind of new. We want to hear what you have to say. So they bring him up to Aries, and, it's, it's, and they begin to discuss. They begin to shoot ideas back and forth and talk about these things. Now remember, his heart is originally stirred up because of idolatry. The interesting thing about idolatry, uh, I suppose there's a lot in, in, in their um, different philosophies and so forth. So Epicureans, uh, I'm going to summarize here because it's, you know, there was a lot of book, books about it. Epicureans basically were mostly atheistic, and they believed that the end of life or the chief goal of life is pleasure, to whatever that means. If that's sexual, if it's intellectual pursuits, whatever it means for you, that you need to do what you need to do to find your pleasure. So it's pretty much American. All right. Then you have uh, the, the Stoics, and maybe, maybe you've heard this, you know, because why are you so Stoic? Ironically, the word Stoic just means painted porch. <laughs> and so the philosophy is actually named after where this man, uh, I can't pronounce his name, like Zoa or Zoar, where he kind of began preaching the Stoic idea. The Stoic idea is merely that man, to achieve happiness or fullness, needs to find his place in what the gods have for him. So while the Epicureans rejected the gods having any impact in life, the, the uh, mythological gods having any impact in life, and it's just about finding yours, the Stoics said no, that the, the mythological gods are very much involved in life, and we need to conform our lives to theirs, but in a way that's outside of emotion. So that's why we say, why are you so Stoic? Because the idea was emptying oneself of emotion. In other words, not being afraid of pain and not desiring pleasure. An absolute medium. Being able to go through anything and do anything and be rid of uh, any kind of input from self. Does that make sense? That that was their philosophy and that's how you would achieve wholeness and how you would achieve um, uh, peace of mind and, and life. That's where life came from. So in this, all this idolatry and all the different, there's more philosophies, obviously, in Athens. These are just the ones that are mentioned here. And all these things that are going on, they, they begin to question Paul, but the idolatry never changes. So just like then, whether you were, you know, Athens is named for Athena, right? So Athena, uh, she had multiple um, 
temples and shrines and so forth were built to her. Uh, part of the pantheon was dedicated to her. And if you ever see Athena in, in mythology, she was represented, she's a, basically a goddess uh, of war in, in some respects. She's considered a war goddess. And she wore a helmet and she's depicted with a sword. Um, ironically, with that, she was kind of like the goddess of the loom. Um, not fruit of the loom, but like weaving and so forth. So she, you know, she was, if, if you had a trade and you were somebody who made cloth or something like that, you would bring sacrifices to Athena in order that your business and your weaving and so forth could become better. And there were other crafts. She was kind of a, a goddess of crafting, as it were. So having said that, it's interesting that no matter if you go to like uh, uh, antiquity and or even Phoenician gods, Canaanite gods, Greek gods, Roman gods, American gods, Parisian gods, it doesn't matter. All idolatry is the same. And it's the idea of I do something, I make sacrifice in some way, whether it's to a stone or a temple or to a... a, a uh, an idea or whatever it might be, I make sacrifice in my life to this thing and it gets me benefit. Idolatry is a very weird thing where we're saying, I lay down this sacrifice and in exchange, I expect to be a better weaver. Uh, I expect better crops. I expect more children. I expect some sort of personal gain. That's what idolatry is. I serve this in exchange for this. Another big part of idolatry is appeasing. I appease Athena. I appease Zeus. I appease Moloch. I appease Baal, you know, whatever God you want to kind of make up or goddess. And therefore, this person does that. All the way back to, if you look at like Moloch, you know, we read about Moloch in the Old Testament. They had, would make a metal statue, almost kind of I don't want to say Buddha-esque, but he's kind of had this big belly, and the belly was open, and you would build a fire in there, and Moloch had these arms that were out like this, and you'd get the fire until Moloch was nice and red hot, and then you took your firstborn and stuck it right into the arms of Moloch and watched it burn to death. You did that so that Moloch would bless your family and give you more children and more crops. So there's this idea of an appeasing or a sacrifice, you give that and then you get more. We do the same thing in society today, uh, whether it's sacrificing our children for the sake of uh, a better job or whatever it might be, uh, aborting them so that we can be more financially secure. It's never changed. It's always giving sacrifice so that I can have more. And so the, 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 that's kind of the upside of adultery, if there was one. The downside is that idolatry makes you a slave. You have to keep serving this God. You have to keep serving this idea. You have to keep giving to it in order to receive from it, to appease it. In this case, we don't want Zeus to be mad at us, or you don't want Neptune to be mad at us, because if Neptune gets mad at you as a, as a sailor, then he raises up a storm and he destroys your boat. So to avoid that, you go to the temple of Neptune before you have a big journey. You drop some money in the, in the uh, Neptune coffers, leave some meat behind, maybe get a temple prostitute, something like that, and to show your dedication to Neptune, and then you go and you take your trip. So it's a very kind of a wild thing. So when Paul sees this, and have you ever seen someone who's enslaved to something? Do you get mad at them? Maybe, if there's personal offense. But typically... You have compassion, right? You, you say something like, don't you see that's killing you? Don't you see that that's hurting you? Why do you keep doing that? 
I'm trying to help you. So that's what Paul goes through. So when he begins his gospel to the Epicureans, to the Stoics, to the the general people of Athens, as we've talked about in great detail last week, it's not from this place of wrath and anger and and, and, judgment. I just can't believe you guys are doing this, and I I just hate you, and why don't you change, and how disgusting are you, You all these ideas. No, he comes there and he sees this, and he goes, no, this is a terrible thing. Let me explain to you the God that you don't know. He says, I see that you have this altar over here. And when he says, I observe that you're very religious, it literally is, I observe that you fear greatly all your deities. There's something inside you have a great fear. You fear your deities. That's what he means when he says, I see that you're religious. And he says, and I saw that you have this altar to an unknown God. And that's literally what it was. It was out of fear, out of concern that there was some God that they might have forgotten at some point or didn't serve or whatever. They had this little altar over here. And it was like, just in case altar. Like, we'll throw this guy a banana just in case, you know, whatever happens. That's, that's not a healthy life, right? That's not encouraging. That's not secure. That's not any of those things. Idolatry always destroys. So Paul comes along and says, I want to tell you about the God that you don't know, that you admit you have this altar to that you don't know. And that's where we kick up this morning because it's actually pretty dang encouraging how idolatry versus who Jesus is. Unfortunately, and why it's encouraging is because many times we can let idolatry or religiousness or creep into our Christian walk, which is exactly what God does not want. And he says there in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything uh, in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. So the first thing he talks about here is he says, I'm going to tell you about the Lord of heaven and earth, that he created everything. Now, obviously, this is going to go against the grain of everything that they're saying, right? This is going to upset the Stoics. It's going to upset the Epicureans. It's going to upset all the idolatrous bystanders. It's going to upset the Jews. This is an upsetting thing. And we're not out to upset people or try to offend people, but we do want to give people the truth. And we already talked about his motivation is love. But what he says here, he says he's the Lord of heaven. There's different words that are translated Lord in the English. You might recall way back in the beginning of the Gospels, when Peter has an uh, interaction with Jesus, remember Peter's already met Jesus, we read, we read about it in the beginning of John, and then he ends up going fishing. And remember when Peter and some of the fellas, they're standing on the beach, and Jesus walks up to them, they're cleaning their nets, and Jesus says to them, hey, why don't you shove off and we'll, we'll do some fishing. And Peter says, he says, Master, we've been fishing all night, and we haven't caught anything, but at your word, we'll go out and we'll drop the nets. Now, the word master there, it's kind of, it'd be like a, uh, it's a term of respect, meaning something along the lines of uh, essentially rabbi with authority or uh, somebody like a principal of a school, something like that, headmaster. That's the word he uses for Jesus. He, he, says, he says, you know what, because you have some authority, you're a rabbi. He's humoring him. He says, okay, we'll go out and let down this net in the middle of the day when nobody catches fish and we'll see what happens, Right? So they shove out. We're probably familiar with the story. They drop the net in. It gets full of fish. They start to bring it up. The net breaks. They have to call their friends over. Hey, help us go. This is crazy. And then Peter, in the midst of it, turns around and he says, depart from me. I'm a sinful man, Lord. And that's this word, curious. And it's the idea not of person, rabbi of authority, or person I should listen to, or headmaster. It's authority of the universe. 
the person with all the authority. That's what he's saying here. That's what Peter says back then. It's the conversion that happens in his life once he sees the Lord work in his own life, in his own eyes. And it's the, the, what Paul is preaching to these people, that this is the Lord. This is the God with all the authority. And the cool thing as we progress through this is we see what God does with his authority. Human beings and idols, as they were, misuse authority all the time, don't we? You ever misuse your authority even with your own kids? You're just so chapped about something? It's really easy to exercise authority wrongly over a child, isn't it? Because all they can do is stare at you. There's literally nothing they can do. It's a pretty ugly thing when it happens. And I think, well, I don't know about your life. I've done that before. I've just been upset about something. Be like, oh, why did you do that? I remember one time I was, uh, I don't know why, I was laying on the floor. I think we just got a new puppy. And Chloe decided for whatever reason, she was a great kid, she's a playful kid, to just do like this powerbond knee right to my groin. Yeah, it was awesome. And so like I just, it was one of those things where you just instantly have pain. And so I like kind of sat up from this fetal position and I was like, why would you do that? And I was like super intense and angry and, you know, whatever. Not justifying it, I'm just telling you what happened. And, I, and her little face crumpled. It just crumpled. And she walled up with tears, and she said, I'm so sorry. And it, like, broke my heart because I realized what I had done in my wrath over my pain. I mean, just complete innocent, just trying to have fun and join in with the new puppy thing. A mistake was made, a big one, but a mistake was made, <laughs> right? And she caught my wrath for it, and it, and it ruined her. It, it destroyed her little heart right then, and it was, it was devastating to me. We're, we're familiar with what misused authority is like, right? It's, it's terrible. But Paul's going to go on here, and he's, he's talking about how and why God uses his authority. And the first thing he says, he, used it, he created everything. He created. We use oftentimes our authority to destroy, whether it's to destroy someone who gave us a cold latte or to destroy someone we think deserves it, to destroy someone who didn't serve us fast enough. We can get so weird and we try to use, but he has always used his authority from the beginning to create and to bless. And that's really the difference that we'll see as we go through this that Paul's making. He's saying, your idols, they demand service and appeasement and sacrifice. Have you ever felt that way about God? Have you ever felt that way about coming to church? If I'm going to be good this week, I should probably come to church. If I'm going to appease God, I really want this job, I should probably pray or go to church or something, and then I'll show God, like, I'm in. Give me this job. We get all sorts of weird ideas in our mind based, they're idolatrous. They're religious. I'm going to appease God, and therefore he'll give me what I want. And Paul's going to show, no, no, that's not God at all. That's not who he is. He's the God who gives. He's the God who blesses. He's the God who works things out. And he begins by saying he's the Lord. He has all authority, authority over Zeus, authority over Athena, and every other person that you can mix in there. Neptune, all the gods, Greek and Roman, all of them, he has the authority. But in that authority, he is the creator. And he's going to go on from that point, and he's going to say, if we look in verse, uh, the end of verse 24, he's the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples made uh, by man. Now again, what was all around them in Athens and everywhere else in the Greek world? Temples. All these buildings erected to be, to, to, uh, for the gods to dwell in and all these kind of things. Now, this, now, God had a temple too, right? This is like, I, I think we're right around, I think, 58-ish A.D. here. So the temple hasn't been destroyed in Jerusalem yet. 
It's still alive and well. Sacrifice is still going on. So what's the difference between temples made with hands and God's temple and before that the tabernacle? Was, is, did God live there? Was the tabernacle like, or the temple like kind of God's house and before that he kind of like had a motorhome that he cruised around in the promised land with and then they oh, we're going to move into something a little more permanent here. First we'll get some land and then, you know, then Solomon builds it and then God can live in that place. No. When you read the law and you see what it was, the temple wasn't where God lived. It was where God met with human beings. And you had all the sacrifices, remember the animal sacrifices all throughout the Old Testament? They were there to, it says, atone for, or literally those sacrifices, the blood of bulls and goats, they, they smeared, their blood smeared over sin. It atoned for sin. Literally, it hid sin. But it wouldn't be until Christ came where the blood, the perfect blood of the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, it didn't smear over sin, it erased it. It forgave it. It covered it. And we'll talk more about that later. See, so when Paul's saying that he doesn't live in, in temples with hands, he's not negating the temple or the tabernacle and what it was for. Those things were always sacrifices that were made by faith in order for sin to be atoned for that Jesus would complete one day. If you recall, kind of the, the pinnacle of the sacrifices was when one day a year, the high priest, they would sacrifice, they would bleed a, a, a red heifer, and they would take the blood of the red heifer and the, the high priest would put on his garments and uh, he would go into the Holy of Holies, that 15 by 15 by 15 foot box, and there the Ark of the Covenant was in there. And if, you know, it's, I always use this example, it's the most accurate one that you can probably see, but if you go and you watch, not that I'm saying you should, but if you watch uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and you see the Ark that's in the movie, and that's really what it looked like. It was a, a box uh, made of acacia wood, and then it was covered in gold, and there were two... Um, cherubim they were on it and they kind of had their wings outstretched and they connected in the middle and so what happened is the high priest that the lid to the ark was called the mercy seat and once a year the high priest would go in he'd take the blood of the red heifer he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat and God said I will meet with you above the mercy seat and I will forgive the sin of my people so the interaction of, uh, of the, the tabernacle and later the temple, it wasn't a place to, for man to serve God. It was a place for man to meet with God and to receive the forgiveness of sins by faith in the actions that he had, uh, or not actions, but the protocols he had created. Does that make sense? Significantly different. It's also worth pointing out here that when he goes on, it says that he... Uh, as though he needed any, sorry, verse 25, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So there's a complete different dynamic here, isn't there? He's not saying that God never had a temple. He's not saying that God's temple was irrelevant. It was different than their temples by far because it was for the purpose of forgiveness and fellowship, not for the purpose of appeasement. And he makes it even more clear when he goes through and he says, look, God is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Now, again, we can go like, well, hey, wait a minute, Paul, because in half of your 
letters that you wrote, you always refer to yourself as Paul, the servant of God. The doulos in Greek, meaning the bondservant, which is a reference all the way back to the Old Testament, which was if you were in debt and you, you could actually sell yourself for seven years to someone, and for seven years, in exchange for your service, that person would keep you and your family fed. There's no social programs. There's no, there's no, no, no net. So you could go, you could sell yourself to this person, and then if they treated you super well, you could actually say, you know what, I just want to be in your household. I just want to keep serving you. And then they would do this whole ceremony where you go to the elders and you say, my master's been good to me, and I just he's given me you know, everything that I have. He's been kind. I just want to keep serving him. And then they would take you and uh, kind of a little violent. They would take an awl and you'd stand in front of his house. I don't know how that would work. I, maybe a big earlobe. I'm not sure. But they would take an awl and slam it through your ear to the doorpost, which would probably be a stressful situation. But they, you know, they do that. And then after they pull it back out, which you kind of be like, you know, they pull it back out. And they put a gold ring in there. And then everybody, when you went to the market, everybody who saw that would be like, that guy works for somebody really great. That's literally what it was. It was like, that guy, he worked, he's got a good boss. That guy, is, he's solid. And so you, you were a doula. So constantly, Paul refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a willing slave, as it were, of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. So in, in this idea that, what does he mean he's not served with hands? I mean, we... We just had a worship crew. I saw hands, right? There was hands on a guitar, uh, my, you know, whatever, all be. We have kids' ministry, they're using hands. How can we say that God is not served with hands? What's the qualifier? As if he needed something. See, all these other idols that they're serving, they're serving based on appeasement. They're serving out of slavery. They're serving because they have to. That's never been God's plan. He's, it's never been a have to. It's never been a you better. It's never been a God who says, you better appease me. He needs nothing from us, which is really good news because he only desires to be with us. Isn't it tremendously heartbreaking when you find out somebody who's been in your life actually only wanted something from you? Isn't that the most heartbreaking thing ever? To think like, I thought we were friends. I thought we were just hanging out. I didn't realize that there was this alternate plan that I was a debtor to you. See, from the very beginning, in you, you know, all the way back in Genesis, we see God's plan. I'm going to create you. We're just going to hang out in a garden. You guys will do botany. We'll talk. It'll be good. That's God's literal plan. Sin enters in, complicates everything as it always does, and we kind of may be familiar with the rest of it. But for God, from the beginning until this day, until today, God's desire has always been fellowship. It's never been appeasement. It's never been a, a relationship of fear and cowering. So he's, when he says, look, he's not served by human hands as if he needs something, the idea there is that we don't have to bring him chunks of meat. We don't have to try to appease him so that we can get a better loom or more children or better crops. He told us, Jesus told us that God, his father causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Here we're like, it's a curse. But, you know, when you're a farmer, that's a blessing. He says that he gives. We don't have to, it's not about our hands giving to him. It's about the fact that he's given us everything. He says life and breath and everything. 
See, idolatry always works the opposite. In an idolatrous relationship or religious relationship, who gives and who takes? In, 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 in all idolatry, we're always the giver and the idol is always the taker. But Paul says, no, no, no. The God that you don't know, the God that you have your altar to, no, no, no. He's the giver and you're the taker. Because there's no other way for a person to be saved. We can never give enough. There aren't enough chunks of meat. There aren't enough temple prostitutes. There aren't enough hours in the day to ever earn what God said he gave us in Christ. Forgiveness and fellowship. So just as this was a revolutionary idea in this day, it's a revolutionary idea in our day. How many of us for many years have had the experience that we related to God on a religious or idolatrous way? How many of us are still doing that? That's a hard road. It's a hard road to live, to constantly think that you have to appease God or he's going to get you. It's a hard road to serve idols. It's hard to serve money, isn't it? It's hard to serve sex. It's hard to serve drugs or alcohol. It's hard to self-medicate. It's a difficult life, the idolatrous life, that keeps taking and taking and taking, and we keep giving and giving and giving, hoping that somehow, some way, we'll feel whole and we'll be okay. And Paul comes along in this terrible time. He says, no, 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 no. God's given you everything. He gave you life, your soul, who you are. He gave you your breath, strength, vitality. He's given you everything. So in, in, when we're talking about, in, in a Christian sense, of our relationship to God, it's never a relationship of appeasing. Our goal in our relationship is to be pleasing. In, in a way that it's, it's not, I'm, a, I'm, I'm somehow going to make God not mad at me, because what Jesus did at the cross. I want to be involved with God and what he originally purposed me for, and that's pleasing to him. He could have made robots, Right? If he's the Lord of the earth, then why is there bad? If he's the curios and the creator of heaven and earth, then why is there bad? Why is there negative? Why, why do these bad things happen on the earth? If he was the Lord, shouldn't he stop that? You can't have any relationship without some bad because we're all broken people. Can you imagine what your thought life would be like if God stopped you from having any thought that didn't revolve around love for him or another person? Like, I'm pretty sure like 90% of our thought life would be just drooling. I mean, can you imagine that? If you tried to have a negative thought or a judgmental thought and it just didn't come? Like, I thought... Can you imagine if God stopped every evil thing from ever happening? Every evil word you've ever said? It'd be a lot of conversations of us just staring at people. Like... Facebook would have to uninstall. I mean, can you, imagine that? can you imagine that? But the other side of that, which I'm once like, well, that sounds kind of good, except for two things. Number one, you'd be a robot because there is no love without free will, not true love. There's only robotics. And number two, we would have no idea what God was saving us from or how, how destructive sin was. See, free will, we've talked about this a lot. I think it's so important, even this foundational idea. It's so important. God allows certain things to happen because they, 
Number one, it's our will. He doesn't want robots. And number two, because it's such a great demonstration for us. Isn't it amazing that when we finally see our need, then we're open to Christ? If you look, if we were to turn to Revelation and look at all the letters that, that Jesus writes to the, the Asian churches during that time, Asia Minor, how over and over again this idea, in the history of Israel, if we were to re- review that over and over again, in fact, with Israel, he even tells them, he says, it's incredible. He says, here's, what, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to bring you in the land. You're going to get farms that you didn't work for. You're going to get these fields. You're going to get livestock. You're going to get olive trees. You're going to get all these great things. And he says, when you get these things, do not forget me. And it's ironic because he says, you will. You're going to forget me. But that's okay. I'm faithful. When you get these things, do not forget me. And so the, the tough times, the difficulties, those so often bring us to Christ. Those are so often what allow us to call out to the Lord. It's need. Need is, is, is so valuable. Anyway, so the, the relationship is, he says, he's not served with, by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And in verse 26, he says there, and he made from one man every nation, um, excuse me, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. And we'll stop there for a second. This would have been a tremendous insult to the Athenians. And he made from one man every nation of mankind. Greek, and especially Athens, historically we know this, they believe themselves to be superior to virtually the world. They looked at themselves as kind of a beacon of light, as, a, as this place of knowledge and wisdom and understanding. In fact, we use the word barbarian, right? We're familiar with the word barbarian. Maybe you think of like Arnold Schwarzenegger, the big old sword or something. I don't know. But, you know, the, the word barbarian is actually uh, derived from a Greek word, which is barbaros or barbaros. And it's actually a slur against every other nation in the world that the Greeks use. And what it is, it's, it's a slang word, and it's a, it's, a, it's a mockery of other people's language. And what, so what they were saying was, when a Greek was talking about a barbarian, he's, it's like saying everybody else just sounds like bar, 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 bar. That's literally what it is. It's just making fun of everybody else's language and knowledge in the world. Those are the Athenians. So now we have the word barbarian. So if you've ever, you know, really not wanted a politically correct word, it's barbarian. But that's what it's from. So when Paul comes along and he says, look, every single person comes from one blood, from one man. There's an equality across all humanity, and there's no bloodline, there's no nobility, there's no uh, you know, you know, uh, ruling class, that that does not exist. To the Athenians, that would be a huge insult because they esteem themselves so wise and so incredible. But he comes out and he says, look, every single person is from one blood. Why is this important? How does this fit in? Because what's the whole message here? The whole message is that God loves you that he cares about you, that he has the best for you. There's not one person that's above his love or below his love. Every single person is from one bloodline. Again, just this illustration of the radical, wonderful grace of God, the power of the gospel, the fact that every single person 
has the right to become the child of God. That every single person has the right to be uh, loved by God. God-given rights. You know, our rights, they come and go. We, we can make amendments to the Constitution, right? So you can have, I don't even want to mention any of the rights because then we get all upset about stuff, but you can have certain rights and then you cannot have certain rights. If enough people vote that they don't want that right anymore or if enough people vote that they do want that right anymore, right? That's, that's how our representative democracy works, which is fine. But God comes along and he says, look, in John chapter 1, he says, those that believed on his name have the right to be the children of God. And he says, it's not by the will of man or the will of blood, but by the will of God. So, you know, our Constitution says that we have certain inalienable rights that seem to get alienated now and again. But God says, no, there is one right that no one can mess with. It's your right to be my child. And it comes through not your will, not a religious system, not a temple, an idolatrous system. It comes through God's will in sending his son, Jesus. So this is why this is the gospel is always good news and why the gospel is always hopeful. Because there's no one that's disqualified from it. There's no one who can't achieve it. There's no one who can't work hard because none of those things enter into it. When Jesus Christ came and paid for sin, that's literally what he did. When he's on the cross and he cries out, Tetelestai, or it is finished, he's literally saying, I have finished paying the debt for sin. If I have no debt to God, he is appeased, right? That's what it means. Now, some, and something inside of us can maybe rise up and go, oh, don't say that. We owe God everything. And that's true. But we don't owe God everything for our right standing in him because Jesus paid that. That's the gospel. If the gospel wasn't the gospel, it wouldn't be good news. If the gospel was Jesus Christ paid for most of our sin, but now we have to be Christian tryhards or he gets really angry and then we don't go to heaven, how many of us would be so bold to raise our hand and say, I've done enough? Personally, I have definitely paid that last 10% that Jesus laid off, didn't quite do, and now God will accept me. How many of us will raise our hand and say, I've thought enough good thoughts that Jesus would definitely want me on his team? When we put it as it really stands, it's asinine. It's ludicrous. It's crazy to think that salvation could come through anything except the perfect sacrifice of Christ, except the blood that flowed from the wounds in his hands and his feet, from his head, that it would be poured out, that he could cry out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's one of the most baffling things in the world to me, that Jesus looked out upon the people that just said, Physician, heal yourself. If you're so powerful, come off that cross. And he says, Father, forgive these guys. They don't know what they're doing. <laughs> That's incredible. If I was Jesus, I'd be like, okay, what now? But that love and that care, he stays on the cross until he can say it's finished, that he had paid the full wrath of God. He has not destined us for wrath, Paul would write to the Thessalonians. 
when you received Jesus, if you cried out to Christ, and when we say that, we just mean, Lord, I need your forgiveness. Lord, I need, I need what you did at Calvary to apply to me. I can't honor my way to heaven. I don't have a snowball's chance in hell. I got nothing. I received that forgiveness. I received, he says, when you did that, when that was worked out in your life, that you were truly forgiven. You were truly, the debt is paid. There's literally no more debt for your sin. It is finished. He didn't say, it's almost done. He didn't say, this was a good down payment. Right? He said, it is finished. There's no appeasement to be done in Christianity. So then obviously something different is happening here. Because when we see like Paul serving, when we see you know, uh, preaching the gospel, we see being kind to each other, we see bearing one another's burdens, we see all these things that we're now called to, a life that we're called to, but it's not a life that's called to appeasement. It's a life that calls to pleasing him and fellowship. See, our goal is not to appease God, it's just to help people know him. It's that relationship, it's that dialogue, it's restoring what we had in Eden. That's what God has been doing for 6,000 years, restoring what we had in Eden. There's a little, and I'm not trying to be crass here, but there's a little phrase that I think is so important. Because it says of Adam and Eve, when they were before God, it says they were naked and they were not ashamed. I'm not trying to get weird here. That's like profound, I think, to be truly laid bare before God and bear no shame. That's like a dream world. And it all was accomplished in Christ. All these people in Athens, there they were day after day, trying to be better craftsmen, better farmers, more children, giving things that cost them so much in the hope that these false gods would give them their desire and to sustain them. And Paul comes along and says, you can stop. Because the, the God that you don't know, that's not what he's like. That's not who he is. The God who created the earth, the God who made everything, he's giving you. He gave you life. He gave you breath. He's giving you everything. So your response to him is not a response of trying to be a, trying to be a better person or trying to do. No, no, no. Your response is just to let him into your life. To be honest with him, to say, here I am, to say, you know, this heart, this wicked heart needs you. And to be able to walk out of here with confidence that he's not mad at you. There's no condemnation to you. That he's not trying to get you because he forgave you in Christ. See, none of us get to walk out of here proud. None of us get to walk out of here like we earn something or we deserve something because we don't. We deserve hell. But we get to walk out of here knowing that our destination is not wrath and anger, not because anything we did but because of what God did in Christ. That's such a hard idea, isn't it? Because everything else in our life is based on merit. Your jobs, raises are based on merit. Your schoolwork was always based on merit. Everything that we do, our relationships are oftentimes based on merit. And that's a fine system for this world. We're not here to debate that system. But with Christ, it's not merit, except the merit of Jesus. He sees you through his Jesus-colored glasses, because Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. What a relief, and, and some people are willing to accept that. So he goes on this, and then we, here we again, we see the heart of God, because it says that he, <clears throat> excuse me, 
He, in verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries after, of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So he goes on, he says this, he says, he's telling them, he goes, look, God has placed the nations and people in the time that they exist and in the place that they exist for this reason, that they would grope after him, that people would try to find God. Have you ever wondered why was I born, where I was born, and when I was born? It's because God, knowing the beginning from the end, decided to bring you and to cause you to be born in a place where you would have the best chance to seek him. That's why. Some people are born in riches, and they discover the, the emptiness of riches, and they find him. Some people are born in squalor, and they discover the hopelessness of squalor, and they find him. Every single person was born. See, we have it backwards. Remember when the disciples, they go to Jesus? There's a blind guy, and he's kind of sitting there. He's been blind since birth. And this is how we think sometimes. We're crazy. They say to Jesus, they say, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he should be born blind. If that's not, you know, people say, there's no stupid questions. No, that one's stupid. Because they're literally asking, did this man sin in utero that he should be born blind? But amazingly today, even our modern age, we think that sometimes, and we have whole religious systems that, 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 with the idea that if you're born with a disability, it's not because we have it a broken world. No, you're born with a disability because God is smiting you. Or how many of us have attributed that to other people? Oh, you have that problem? Probably, you, you should probably repent. I'm just saying. I mean, it's not... And Jesus says, you don't understand. It wasn't this man's parents that sinned or he that sinned. He was born this way so the glory of God could come through him. And he heals him. God allows things to happen because we live in a broken, nasty world. But for any who are willing, he uses those things together for good. But we have to be willing. He's so great. He's so kind. He's, he's got so much for us. He's, he's the giver. And in our response, our response, yes, we hand over our life, and yes, we, but it's not for appeasement. It's, for, it's for, for pleasing him with fellowship. It's for being involved in the original purpose that he had for humanity. Then he says this. This is great. And he says that they should seek God, verse 27, and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. <laughs> Sometimes, I don't know about you, but we can, I can think of kind of like we're here on the earth and God is like somewhere way up there in heaven. You ever thought that way? Like you can have earth and you have the sky and maybe we've even been to like some Ken Ham thing where he talks about the three heavens and all that. I'm not mocking Ken Ham, but you know, it's just that whole like, I'm like, oh, oh. And, we, and then we're like, well, God's like kind of somewhere up here. Like there's space and then like the, the third heaven and then, then there's like God. Or I guess that would be the third heaven, the second heaven. I, I, sorry, got my heavens mixed up. But you know, we can, you know, there they are. But the idea is that we can get in our minds like, he's like, where are you up there? He's like, well, you kind of look out the window like, ah, can you see me with the shades down? Like, he's way, he's way up there. And I'm way down here. And I got all these problems. 
Some that I created, some that others created, but he's way up there. But we, we can't think of, of God in the sense of like time and space in that way. He says that he's near every one of us. See, the, the issue with God isn't like uh, uh, spatial dispersion. The, 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 there's some pretty interesting like physics with that, but the, it's time and eternity. See, the reason he's near each one of us is because we live in time, but he lives in eternity. So he created time, and we live in this linear module of time, but God lives in eternity. So it's more that he stands between a, a slim membrane of time that's kind of passed for us by death. We just pass by, but it's not that he's far from us. He's just in another dimension than us, but he's near us. And not only, he's not saying he's just near to Christians, is he? No, he's saying he's near to every single person that has ever been born. Athena was not near every person that had ever been born, and neither was her story. She was born out of Zeus's forehead, according to mythology. That must have been awkward. That was, Zeus was not interested. Neptune was not near. Those were all deities that obviously false deities that had to be appeased. But God is doing everything. Our God, our Lord, he has always done everything and always will do everything he can to reveal himself and bring us to him, including letting us suffer. He's just that good. Sometimes being a good God means allowing pain. I've shared this before because it's kind of a seared memory. A couple times when I worked uh, for medics, ambulance, we would go to car accidents. And, well, a lot of times we'd go to car accidents. And I remember one, there was this dude, and he was unrestrained. He wasn't wearing a seatbelt. So he went forward, and he actually got stuffed underneath the, the dashboard. So like literally like only this part of him was sticking out underneath the, from the dashboard. And he was screaming, obviously. And so we get there, and we're kind of waiting for fire, trying to start an IV on him, waiting for fire. And they have these cool tools, and they're really fun and manly, and they, like, basically roll the dash back up. That's how it works. And so once you get the dash back up, you, you have to secure their, uh, their uh, cerebral spine, or, I mean, cervical spine, and all the stuff you have to do, right? And then you pull them out. And sometimes you can get the good stuff on board, and sometimes you can't. Sometimes they get the opiates, and sometimes you just got to get them out. And the crazy thing is, when we take them out, we tell them, this is going to hurt really bad. Like, this is going to really suck. And we're not going to stop. We're just going to pull you out of the wreck. And then you start pulling them out of the wreck, and they start screaming. And then you can see the deformities. This guy, his femur had actually shot up into his buttock up here, and he's screaming. And you know what we did? We pulled him out while he screamed. We would have been really crummy EMTs if we were standing there and we were like, oh, shoot, this really hurts. We're just going to leave you there. <laughs> Here's a lot of opiates. Go to sleep. We're not going to keep going with this because this is hurting you. No, any, any personnel, any doctor, any medical personnel worth their salt, they're not trying to hurt you, but they're willing to do it. And God is so kind. He's the good physician. He's willing to let you hurt in order for you to get to a place where you're willing to acknowledge him. And then he's going to use that for good in your life. That's who he is. 
He's an amazing and a wonderful God. Then Paul's going to go on here. He's going to, he's going to quote. He says, For in him we live and move and we have our being. He's, so he's quoting two different poets from their time. And even some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Now, he's not saying that we're all, uh, everybody's saved, like a universalism. He's not saying that all of us have div- divinity in us or, um, excuse me, some uh, philosophical statement like that. No, he's just saying, just as Adam is called the son of God, right? Adam was a son of God and all his offspring, therefore, are children of God. That's, he's using their poets to make a statement and to expand the truth that their poets had kind of batted around. This idea that we are descendant uh, physically from Adam, who was God's creation as, as essentially a son to God the Father. Not the son, a son. So he's going to say, because we are God's offspring, he says, then we have to know, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. This is another interesting thing about idols. They're always fashioned after us. We fashion the idols for what we want. And we kind of, which is so, I think, kind of this weird cyclical thing that occurs where we decide, like, uh, I want, I don't know, fill in the blank. I want something. I'm going to do these things to get that thing. Whether it's, I'm going to, sacrifice to Athena, I'm going to sacrifice to Moloch, I'm going to sacrifice whatever it might be, I'm going to do these things so that I can get this thing. But that thing that we design, we do it after our own imagination. In essence, it's weird because the, the idols that we enslave ourselves to are just our own ideas that play out to the, about what we think we want. So we literally enslave ourselves to ourselves with this foreign thing that we make. Is that not bizarre? We're so weird. And then we keep serving that thing because we think that it will bring us happiness when in reality it brings us into slavery and we may even achieve the thing that, we're, that we want to the thing that we're serving and we're still not happy. It's crazy. We can go our whole life serving mammon, thinking it will deliver us and make us feel so happy to have money, only to find out in the end it was worth nothing. It wasn't fulfilling. It's crazy. He says, we, he goes, you cannot attribute God to be like us. Verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he says this, in the time of ignorance, God overlooked. The idea there is that God has always been patient in the times of idolatry, which has been you know, here we're talking about uh, the, the first century, so 4,000 years prior to this. He says, look, God has always been patient in this idolatry. It doesn't say that he endorsed it. doesn't say there was no judgment. We're not here to decide that. It just says that he was patient or he overlooked the things that people did. He's not saying there was no accountability. But then he says this, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day. Now, here's the thing. Repentance, for many of us, can have a negative connotation. Because if we've subscribed to a Christianity of appeasement, repentance means I have to stop doing what I want to do so that I can appease God so he's not mad at me, right? That's, that's what repentance means. So it can be very negative. You can be like, uh, <clears throat> instead of, oh, oh, what's a good one? 
So we can say something like, probably most of us know we should have some sort of devotional life, right? I'm not judging you if you don't. We probably all know that, though. Because that's like thing number two that happens when you become a Christian, if you stick around a church. Like, and, then, and then if you go to a church where there's like a lot of accountability and so forth, people are like, how's your devotional life going? How are you doing your devotions? Did you do your devotions today? Which devotional do you use? Are you reading the Word? Do you have the schedule for a Bible in a year? Do you have a schedule for a Bible in two years? I mean, that's kind of slacking, but if that's what you've got to do, you know, we, we can kind of get in this like weird thing, right? Where in reality, to have a devotion could be something that was really great, right? Because I have some options. I can, in the morning, with my first cup of coffee or my second, depending on what it takes for you, I can fire up the news or Facebook. I'm sorry, I'm sorry I pick on Facebook so much. It's just every time I log in, I'm like, this is yikes. But whatever. Maybe your Facebook is just rose petals and faith. Mine is not. Maybe I have the wrong friends. Except you're my friend, so I don't know. But the, <laughs> so the, uh, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? So I have an option. I can, the first thing in the morning, I can be, you know, one of the things, I, Tam, Tam reads the news, and, and I, I always mess with her. I ask her, I go, oh, was it good news today? And she's never said yes. It's weird. <laughs> she's never been like, yeah, it was just this, I just scrolled and scrolled and scrolled, and it was nothing but people getting saved and getting along. It was amazing. No. It's all terribleness, Right? And that can really set the tone for the day, can't it? So if we look at repentance as I need to stop reading the news because it's naughty, and now I need to read the Bible because that's holy, what that brings us to is I'm appeasing God by reading his Bible so that maybe somehow he'll be nice to me today. That's a trash life. That's a miserable life, a life of appeasement. But instead, he says he calls all people to repent everywhere. And I'm just using an example. I'm not saying this is what God is calling you to repent of. But if instead, repentance is actually, instead of filling my mind very first thing in the morning with all the terribleness of this world, I begin to seek God's face. I don't have a devotional. I just seek God's face. All of a sudden, repenting, turning from one thing and turning to another is not appeasing God, but in fact, positioning myself to hear from God. To listen to him. And some days you'll have just the, the revelation. You're like, if you looked in the mirror, you're pretty sure there'd be like a tongue of fire on your head, and you get something out of the word, and you're like, this is amazing, this is great. This, and some days you're like, okay, well, I read that, and uh, apparently the disciples are just as bad as me, and uh, pff, I'm gonna move on with my day. But in one sense, in one, in one way, you offered yourself to the Lord, and you, he had an opportunity to give you input. Maybe he'll use that input later. We don't know. But in another sense, you didn't spend your time also filling your mind with stuff that's just going to wreck you for the day. Just as a side note, because we're wrapping up here, I am, this is just a James Aiken opinion, so throw it right in the trash. I am convinced that we were never designed to know everything that's happening in the world. I am convinced in fact, I've often wondered, like, what would the economy be like if there was no news media? No one to tell us that we're all screwed. <laughs> you know? What would it be like if the news media, you didn't, no one to tell, if we just, like, went out every day and did our job, came home, played Parcheesi with the kids, you know, went to, maybe went to, like, midweek service and see how everybody's doing, and then we went home. Did our jobs, 
came Sundays, loved one another, loved Jesus. I, that's just an opinion. I'm not saying don't read the news. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I don't think we were designed to know the ins and outs of every single thing that happens on the planet than to process that and then live that way. I mean, I don't know about you, but the amount of destruction that happens every day on the planet, I'm not talking about like water sources or whatever, or Fukushima. I just mean like human beings. If you even do the destruction that happens on our peninsula, right? Do you, do you guys know that we have, a, a, I'm not trying to be condescending, did you know that there's like 72 kids on our peninsula that get backpacks every weekend? Because if they don't, they won't eat at their house. They'll come to school hungry. Do you know that they do, they do uh, there's a church in, down in Iwako that does uh, dignity packs for our high school girls because about once a month they won't come to school for a week because they don't have the supplies they need? This is America right? This is where we live. If you just think for a second, the radical suffering that happens every day, and you try to digest that into your, your soul, it will destroy you. Because we live in a wrecked world. But you know what we can do? We can repent when God calls us back to himself. We can experience fellowship with him, and then we can give that to other people. We don't have any condemnation for people. We don't, have to, we don't have judgment for people. We're just here to say your sin is killing you, and Christ is the answer for that, and he'll heal you because of his love and his blood. And if you want that, you can have that, and we want to help you. And that's such a better life than trying to appease God or get other people to appease him. He was appeased in Christ. There's a day of judgment coming. And every single person that says no to Jesus, I don't want anything to do with you, will be forever faithfully separated from Jesus. They'll get what they want or what they think they want. And I don't say that with spite. It's a horrible prospect. But we'll let God do all the judging because he seems to be the one that knows best. And for us, let's just give the message that there's life to be had in this horrible world. And it comes through the blood of Christ. And it comes at a debt that God paid through his son. I love him. Paul, when he meets with the Ephesian elders, we'll get to it later on in Acts. And he says, he tells the Ephesian elders, he says, I want you guys, he says, you need to look after the flock of God that he purchased with his own blood. That God purchased with his own blood in Christ. We got good news today, guys. We have great lives. We have great lives. And we have eternal significance because of what Jesus did. And we don't want to miss out on that. Let's not repent today to appease God. That's been done. Let's repent today to walk with him and give him the pleasure he desires of our fellowship. And what that will work out for us and for those around us, it's eternal. <laughs> and the fruit will never end. So God bless you guys. If you'd like to pray, you know, we'll be up here to pray with you about whatever you'd like to pray with, uh, about, I should say. Um, other than that, We'll, we'll pray right now, and you guys can be on your way. Father, thank you for your great kindness and your great mercy to us. And Lord, thank you that you have great things in store for us. Lord, I pray you would help us to be a light to our community, to be able to share the gospel, to share the warnings of the gospel, to share the good news of the gospel, and to preach Christ and him crucified every which way. Lord, we pray that you would, uh, in this time of, 
COVID and just, it's just weird. People, uh, even talking to them sometimes makes them upset because of viruses and stuff. So I pray that you would help us to find a way to communicate to our community uh, without offending them, I guess. We're fine to offend them with the gospel, but we, we just want a way that they can perceive your love. So we commit that to you. Lord, we pray for a blessed day today. Pray for your presence uh, this, this afternoon as we go forward with you this week. And whether you lead us and you guide us, Lord, thank you for being so kind to us and everything you've given to us. Lord, you, you're, what could we say? You're amazing. And we're probably not as thankful as we should be, but we're as thankful as we can be, I guess. So thank you, uh, Lord, for being good. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.